It's great to be here. I often, when I visit churches, bring greetings from Fuller Theological Seminary, but I feel like I uh, bring greetings to Fuller Theological Seminary <laughs> this morning with the uh, marvelous men and women who are on the pastoral staff of this church, who are fulfilling our mission at Fuller Seminary as a seminary committed to preparing men and women, as we say, for the manifold ministries of Christ and His church. This is a great congregation. It's just a joy to be with you this morning. It's a great personal pleasure, and it's a privilege to open God's Word with you this morning and think about these uh, marvelous words from Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger who announces peace, who brings good news, who announces salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Very familiar words. In fact, they've often been put to music, and we're going to hear one of the the finest settings by Handel later in the service. Very familiar words. Did you ever wonder about the feet? Why not say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the lips of the one who brings good news? Or the mouth of the one who brings good news? But, But why feet? Well, we have to remember that the prophet here is speaking to a captive city. And he says to them, pretty soon the the bonds that are wrapped around your neck are going to be taken away and you're going to be free. We we need to think of this kind of setting. Here's a city up against a mountain range. And the city for a number of years now has been held captive. It's been besieged by an occupying force. Its life has been miserable. And they've been hoping for some kind of deliverance. And and right now, on the other side of the mountain range, there's a battle going on where the forces that are attempting to liberate the city from the oppressor are engaged in warfare against the oppressive forces. But they don't know how the battle is going. No cell phones. No fax machines. CNN isn't covering it. And so every day they go about their daily business, but they're constantly scanning the the top of the mountain range to see if anyone is coming to bring news of the battle. Then one afternoon, a runner appears at the top of the mountain. And he gradually makes his way down the winding path, and he comes into the city And as soon as he catches his breath, he says, I have good news for you. We won the battle. The war is over. You're liberated. No longer will you bow down under the yoke of oppression. Everything is fine. And then they say, because they know that this runner has brought them the message, because he is swift and sure of foot, they say, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the one who brings good news. That's the setting. But it also says something to us today about the good news that we have gathered here to listen to and to receive into our hearts today. Let's think about that a bit. For one thing, it is news that we're here for. We're here for a message. This is one of the great things about... uh, having a leadership role at Fuller Theological Seminary, a seminary that's really committed to 
training, preparing men and women to proclaim a message. I mean, I mean, suppose that runner had, had shown up and caught his breath and he said, Hey, folks, I just got to tell you how good I feel about myself because I just ran 17 miles. I am in very good shape. <laughs> or, uh, hey, I've got to tell you, folks, the last 17 miles that I've run, the most beautiful scenery you can imagine. You folks need to walk up there sometime and look at it. Or, or suppose you say, I just feel so privileged that... Of all the people who could have been chosen to, to make this run today, I was the designated runner. And they would have said, what's the message? <laughs> Tell us the news. And that's why we're here this morning, to hear news. But it's also good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, good news. I've learned a lot in uh, my spiritual and theological journey about what it means for the Christian story to be good news from writers like these names, some of them at least will be familiar to you. C.S. Lewis, you've got a study group in this congregation. C.S. Lewis, it's great. And Charles Williams and Dorothy Sayers and, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Now, you all ought to know who Tolkien is these days because he's the author of Lord of the Rings and other tales of the Middle Earth. Tolkien, in addition to being a wonderful storyteller, was a scholar who studied stories. He was a scholar at Oxford University, very interested in all of the ancient myths and legends and, and fairy tales. In fact, he wrote a wonderful essay. It was actually a scholarly presentation that he gave at one of the Scandinavian universities with the title, on fairy stories. It's a very scholarly piece. He uses a lot of his examples from uh, uh, Scandinavian fairy tales and mythologies. And, and he sets forth a, a certain perspective on the fairy tale that I find very, uh, very convincing. He says the, the fairy tale is a unique genre of literature. You have tragedy, you have comedy, you have other forms of literature, you have the fairy tale. And, and the fairy tale has a, a unique structure all of its own. He uses a technical term for it, but what, comes down, what it comes down to is this. The fairy tale always embodies a good catastrophe. That is, there's always a catastrophe in the fairy tale. There's a wicked witch, there's a troll, an ogre, a dragon, a curse, a spell. There's always something that goes terribly wrong to somebody in a fairy tale. And, and it's just, it just seems hopeless. But then there's always a remarkable turn of events and things end up going right and the last line of every fairy tale stated either explicitly or implicitly is, and they live happily ever after. Right? Me think of uh, Sleeping Beauty, and and I've got to tell you, I check. I always confuse Sleeping Beauty with Snow White, but I'm not going to do it today. <laughs> Sleeping Beauty did not have a poison apple lodged in her throat. She uh, she pricked her finger with a pin that cast a spell, and she went to sleep. She looked like she was dead. They put her in this castle, and a hundred years went by. 
During that hundred years, the, the forest grows thick around the castle. Vines, brambles. It's just hidden completely from view. And it's hopeless. Well, not exactly hopeless. I mean, there's a far out possibility that some good looking prince will come along. And he'll work his way through the, the brambles and the vines and the thicket around the castle and he'll discover the castle and he'll manage to go in and he'll see the body and he'll decide she isn't really dead and he'll lean over and he'll kiss her and she'll come back. I mean, that's never going to happen. That's, and the amazing thing is that the unthinkable, the almost impossible happens in the fairy tale and they live happily ever after. Therapists could do a job on me on this, but I really like that one where the handsome prince gets turned into the frog. <laughs> Partly because it feeds my Calvinism. I'm a good Presbyterian. And, you know, he's turned into this frog. He used to be a handsome prince. And, and uh, he, he's not going to get out of the mess by thinking positive thoughts about his frogness. It's not going to help that he says, I think I can, I think I can. There's no way. It's impossible. Well, maybe not completely impossible. But it's hardly even worth mentioning. The far out possibility. I'm almost embarrassed to mention it. But there is a possibility. It's never going to happen. But a beautiful princess would have to come along and see this frog. And well, I'll say it. I mean, she has to lean over and kiss the frog. How can you imagine a beautiful princess kissing a frog? And the amazing thing in the fairy tale is that the princess kisses the frog. And he turns back into the handsome prince again, and they live happily ever after. Tolkien talks about those kinds of examples. And then he says this toward the end of his essay. He says, now I want to tell you why I'm personally so interested in fairy tales. He says, I'm a Christian. He was a very devout Roman Catholic. And he says, as a Christian, I believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ has the structure of a fairy tale. Something has gone terribly wrong. We're hopeless, depraved sinners because of our rebellion before the face of the living God. We are hopelessly involved in a mess that we can't get ourselves out of. And it's just hopeless. Well... Maybe not completely hopeless. Of course, it's never going to happen. But what it would take to get us out of the mess is that the sovereign ruler of the universe, the God of all grace and mercy, who rules over all things, by whom all things were made, that this God would have to come down. And he would not only have to enter into our condition, but he'd have to be willing to go to a cross and suffer on our behalf and shed his blood on our behalf to pay the price for us to be rescued from our hopeless, otherwise hopeless estate. And the wonderful thing about the Christian story is that that's precisely what happens. The beautiful one comes down and kisses the ugly ones. And then Tolkien says this, the, the gospel has the structure of a fairy tale, but there's one big difference between the gospel and every other fairy story, and it's this. It's true. We really are in a mess. 
God really did send His Son into the world so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but should have everlasting life. That God really did send a Savior to rescue us. He really did go to the cross. He really did shed His blood on our behalf. And it really is true that someday we will live happily ever after with Him in His eternal kingdom. The wonderful thing about the Christian story is that it's a fairy tale that's true. That's good news, brothers and sisters. That's good news. And it's good news because it's good news about a victory that God has achieved. A victory that has established the kingdom. You know, we come here to hear that good news that God has reached down to us in our helplessness. But we also hear that as we gather together in this place and we hear the Word of God and we pray and we confess our sins and we worship together and we gather around this table, that we're given not only the power but the mandate to go forth from this place with these words ringing in our ears, Our God reigns. He's the ruler over all things. He's the authority over all spheres of human life. And we are called to serve God in our personal relationships, in our family relationships, in our studies, in our workplace, in the ways in which we think about the big issues of cultural life, political life, economic life. In all of these areas of life, we are called to show forth in ways that are possible for us under these present conditions to to show forth to the world the fact that our God reigns and that we are people who are living under the direct rule of the God who has sent Jesus Christ into the world. Our God reigns. Our God reigns because He has achieved the victory. There's a wonderful, wonderful description of that victory here in, in, this, in this chapter. Verse 10. It says, The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now these Old Testament people who heard these wonderful words, when they heard that the Lord God would bear His holy arm and bring about the victory so that all the ends of the earth can see the salvation of their God, they rightly, in their context, saw this in militaristic terms, in terms of physical force. You know, what, what does it mean for God to bear His holy arm? He's going to roll up His sleeves. He's going to make a fist. And He's going to really stick it to our enemies and He's going to win the battle on our behalf. That was a reasonable way of understanding that in the context that Isaiah was speaking in. But we're New Testament Christians. And we can look back at that verse and we can see things that the ancient people could not see. And we know that. You know what happened when God bared His holy arm to bring about the victory? He went into a manger. He was a little baby. And He stretched out those, uh, those bare arms as a helpless baby who came into the world to experience our helplessness, to be tempted in every way that we're tempted, to suffer in all the ways that we've suffered, and to do so without sin so that He could live a life of perfect obedience to the law of God. And even more wonderfully, there was that day that He climbed the hill of Calvary. That He climbed that mountain. And He bared His holy arms by stretching out those arms and allowing them to pierce His hands with the nails. 
And he stretched out his bare feet and they nailed those feet to the cross. And he suffered and he bled on our behalf. He shed his blood on our behalf so that we can say with a joy that could never be understood by the people of the Old Testament, how beautiful are those feet on that mountain from the messenger who brings us good news. How beautifully, how beautiful are the feet of the one whose blood was shed on Calvary. A very important word for us this week as we enter into the Lenten season. Face Ash Wednesday this week. Those are beautiful feet. Those are beautiful bare arms that were stretched out on the cross on our behalf. And as we go forth from the church, we can, we can take the confidence with us that, that our God does indeed reign and He has brought about the victory because of what Jesus Christ did in His suffering and in His death on Calvary. Not always easy to work all that out, though. I've had a very busy week. And uh, starting tomorrow night, I, I start another very busy two weeks. I got a little break tomorrow. I did a lot of work, a lot of work the last week or so. And uh, now I'm going to read a novel starting tomorrow morning when I get on the plane. Uh, and not a very demanding novel. Uh, I'm going to read Robert Ludlum's The Sigma Protocol. I like, when I get on a plane after some busy times. I like to read a Tom Clancy or a Robert Ludlum novel. I started this one about a month ago on a trip, and I haven't looked at it since, but I do know I'm up to 100, page 10, page 110. <laughs> this novel has, I checked this morning, uh, 662 pages. <laughs> Tell you what's going to happen when I get to about page 331, halfway through. It always happens. This guy, actually, in the first 110 pages, he's Innocent businessman in Geneva, and all of a sudden somebody starts shooting at him, and the plot thickens, and he finds out his brother, who he thought had been killed a couple of years ago, is still alive, and the brother reveals to him that his father is really the, an ex-Nazi who is now the head of some international conspiracy. And things are getting very complicated already by 110. On page 331, I almost guarantee you this is going to happen. He's going to be surrounded by the enemy. It doesn't look like he's ever going to get out alive. And the woman that he recently fell in love with is being held captive someplace and it doesn't look like they'll ever get back together again. <laughs> and I'll get into it. You know what I do when I get to page 331? I turn to the last page. <laughs> I don't read it very carefully. I just scan it. And I want to find out two things. He's still alive, and the two of them are back together again. <laughs> and once I've seen that, I can go back to page 331, and it hasn't really ruined it for me. I can work my way slowly, painfully, agonizingly through the plot, but I can move ahead in confidence because I've seen the last page. Now I want to say something very serious to you this morning. I've seen the last page. Many of us are on page 331 today. Certainly we are in terms of the big events that are going on in the world. Wars and rumors of war. The constant threat of a terrorist striking out of nowhere. Economic downturn. 
job insecurity, worries about the future, and all those things in our personal lives, troubles in marriages, families, parent and child, sister and brother, husband and wife, friend and friend. Some of us worry about physical things that are ailing us, wonder how that's all going to turn out. Some of us are struggling with a grief that just doesn't go away, keeps us awake at night, or a depression that keeps coming back and we don't know what to do about it. Page 331. Seems like we're surrounded by the enemy. We're never going to get it all back together again. And I want to say I don't have easy answers for you this morning. But I can tell you this, I've seen the last page. And the last page tells us this, that Jesus is going to come again. And that when he comes again, the victory will be declared over the whole creation. And when he comes again, all tears will be wiped away from our eyes forever and ever. There will no be no more death, be no more cancer, no more heart attacks, no more AIDS. There will be no more marriage breakups. There will be no more family tensions. There will be no more grieving, no more dying, no more pain. Jesus is going to look at the whole creation and He's going to say, Behold, I make all things new and I want to wipe the tears of every one of my children. I want to wipe those tears away from their eyes. And we will live with Him in His eternal kingdom happily, happily ever after. And that means that we can walk out of this place today on page 331. We still don't know how all those things are going to be solved and how it's all going to come together again. But we can walk out of this place and we can agonizingly and painfully and nervously make our way through the, the, the pages that are to come. But we can do so in confidence, knowing that we've seen the last page. And it will be well. May you hear that word of good news. How beautiful, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of the one who brings good news. And he says to his people, I reign over all things, and someday I will make all things new. Amen.